It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by a space historian. She's a YouTuber with over 360,000 subscribers, and she has a new book called Fighting for Space, Two Pilots, and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight. Amy Shira Titel, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, we're so excited to talk to you. And I want, I want to start first by being like, okay, I think this is the first time that I've ever seen the phrase space historian was when they suggested right? <laughs> that we have you as a guest. And I was like, there are space historians? That's re- Okay, so I just want to start there. What is a space historian and why are you the only one that I know? <laughs> um, basically, um, I first learned about the moon landing when I was seven years old and it kind of blew my seven-year-old mind. I just thought like... <laughs> How did they do this? Why did they do this? Why did nobody tell me? Like, I'm from Canada, so it's not like NASA's everywhere. It was very much this, like, revelatory moment. And I was just obsessed, and I wanted to understand all the how and the why. And, like, when some, with something like the moon landing, it's a huge answer, right? So I kind of just followed that childhood fascination through grad school and uh, ended up leaving academia to do it in a public forum. And I, you know, blight rub. Uh, writer, blogger, YouTuber, and uh, yeah, I mean, for lack of a better job title, it's easier to just tell people that I'm a space flight historian, since that's kind of my (laughs) area of expertise. (laughs) I love that so much. I mean, every seven-year-old, like, learns about the fact that we go to space and loses their mind, and you were actually like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do with my life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, basically. (laughs) So, I... I want to ask you about Mars, because that's very cool, and it has implications that I'm sure I, as a non-space historian, do not understand. But I, I want to start with your book, because I'm really intrigued by it. Uh, Fighting for Space is a, a story of a, a rivalry between two would-be women astronauts. Um, but it's it, it, it kind of... The media loves a cat fight, and this story sort of got set up that way... But it seems that in the truth, it's actually more like the cat fight or, you know, the, 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 the fight is between all of the women and the, the patriarchy that's keeping them out of space. So I, I talk a little bit about fighting for space and why, why this story was one that, that needed to be retold. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong that the story was set up then as a cat fight and has been retold in the last 50 years as a cat fight. And I was like, eh, it wasn't a cat fight, guys. Um, so yeah, it's basically the book is a dual biography of two pilots, uh, Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb. They're both extraordinary. Jackie is pretty phenomenal. Uh, she was the most decorated pilot of the 20th century when she died. First woman to fly through the sound barrier, led the Women's Air Force Service pilots in the Second World War, you know, saved LBJ's life one day, just like you do. Um, <laughs> as one these does. Two women's lives, right? <laughs> um, they're a gen- these women are a generation apart. So as pilots, both kind of came up against the fact that they were women in very male-dominant fields, and um, their stories end up intertwining over the issue of women astronauts in the early 1960s. Jerry Cobb, the younger of the two, happened to be in the right place, the right time, and the right age to take the medical test that the Mercury astronauts took. And when the media found out, you know, 
a headline of a woman takes a medical test as astronaut isn't very fun. But mm-hmm. there is a woman astronaut is a lot more fun. So this, this idea of a woman astronaut got picked up in the media. She ran with it. But uh, it turns out Jackie was involved with all of the people who were involved with the program more and was a more notable woman pilot that they came to her. And it ends up being this, this huge mess of these two women trying to take control of a female astronaut program that does not exist. And then as right. more women get involved, their names are dragged into it in the media, but none of them know what's going on. And it has become this, this she said, she said that played out in the media very publicly um, and and it's just it just, it's like a modern day you know Twitter war almost, but uh, yeah. in newspapers, and it, it ends up being this really really interesting, very nuanced, very human story at the end of the day. I'm so Most glad of- to hear that we've evolved so far from that. I mean, we're we're just not like that any longer. We never <laughs> ever set up catfights between two professional women in the media. Um, right? <laughs> There's so many I'm things like, like going I'm through like, the story. Guys. Guys, like we could do better. Um, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to just think about um, women in space. I mean, I'm a little obsessed. I still haven't gotten a telescope. This just reminds me that that's been in my Amazon cart for too long. Oh, just do it. Quarantine. I know it's really dumb, right? I live with a scientist. It's a perfect opportunity. It's about to get warm again. Anyway, putting that aside, what what's like the the coolest fact you've learned um, in in sort of putting this book together, um, but also just in your in your work generally about space, because I feel like, I mean, I ha- Mars is a specific question, um, but I just find s- space to be so, it is the reason why Sandra Bullock in space screaming and nobody can hear her is ter- a terrifying <laughs> moment because it's so big and <laughs> massive that like, I can't even wrap my brain around no, it. You can't comprehend um, it. That's the, but is so there cool. any fact? Yeah. Is, is there any like fun fact that we can wrap our brains around this morning that you want to oh, share? Man. In space? It's the, the fun fact question. It's always like, there's so many things. I know. Um, <laughs> I feel like cause, because I deal predominantly in the human side of things, I, I'm always, the thing that's always, has always struck me and still strikes me that I usually share with people is like, just how human spaceflight is because we have, I think we have this idea that space exploration astronauts is just like, it's super glamorous. Everything's an adventure when in reality, like there is a lot of downtime. Like when you think about going to Mars, you know, a future human mission to Mars, it's just like this epic adventure, except that like it's two years of waiting. And um, I feel like nothing encapsulates this more than like one of my favorite moments in the Apollo program is on Apollo 12 in 1969, there was an hour-long debate of whether or not it was safe to eat a can of tuna that had been opened in a pure oxygen environment for eight hours. Like, this is what they had time to really discuss. But also, they didn't know. Like, they could figure out getting to the moon. This is the second time now. They still hadn't figured out basic things like, oh, yeah, can you keep food open in a pure oxygen environment and not have it kill you? Like, the like at the end of the day it just becomes this very very human endeavor and i feel like that gets lost in like the fanfare of celebrating the big moments that you know whether it's astronauts waiting around to do something or whether it's engineers planning you know for years to land on mars we see this exciting moment and underneath it is just this very human endeavor yeah i think that's a fun fact yeah i didn't know that they argued about 
I actually got to talk to the uh, the astronaut in question about it once, and I made him. He didn't remember this happened. I actually successfully made him laugh so hard I cried, and I was like, "This might be the best moment of my life." (laughs) That's. I I remember uh, watching a documentary that talked about like the first couple of women that were going to be on a short space flight and how obsessed uh, everybody was with what they were going to do if they got their period. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those stories that gets around a lot. (laughs) They they wound up like packing a thousand tampons that they had removed from their applicators for them. And it's like, we we, we already had space tech for this. Like a tampon's going to work just fine. And we don't need a thousand for a week. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's another it's another thing that goes to show like how much this isn't known. I I actually looked into this one specifically, like, why were they so scared? Because you also think like the the people who were, you know, there's medical, there's physicians, obviously, there's flight surgeons who are, you know, at the time they were men, but they're still doctors and they mostly had wives. So like, how is this that foreign? But there was a question of whether or not in microgravity, uh, menstrual blood would actually like not um, drain from the body the same way, whether it would pool in the abdomen and cause problems. And it's just, it's one of those things that like, it sounds really dumb to be like, yeah, we have no idea how much you need, but they, they really didn't know what microgravity might do to it. So it was one of those things where absolutely, like, it's in the same way, they didn't know if a human could swallow in space. There was a huge question right. of whether or not humans would be able to eat. So it's, when you put it in the context of like, okay. I don't know if eyeballs can survive, it's less insane. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you really can't take anything for granted. Like, can a human swallow no. in space? Is it? Is it to- I'm yeah. glad someone asked that question. Could you imagine if they hadn't, and then they got up oh there, and they boy. were like, well, this is going to be a problem. Oh, boy. Legitimately, <laughs> one of John Glenn's mission obje- objectives in 1962 was just eat something. Just swallow something. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Proof incredible. That we can do it. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, well... I- I think proving we can do it is actually a pretty laudable goal, especially when you're talking about space exploration. But that's sort of never the only goal. Um, Mars sort of feels like a let's prove we can do it moment. But is there is there more to going to Mars? Like what? Why are we actually going back to Mars? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we are humans by and large are Obsessed with the idea of finding life on other planets or evidence of past life on other planets. And Mars, like, we've wanted to find evidence for life on Mars since at least, like, the 1820s. Like, going back that far with early, you know, observations from Earth, like, could that be a forest? Like, there's this obsession with Mars. Because partially, it's like, it's really close, so we can get to it relatively easily and we can see it well. But it's also not obscured by clouds like a lot of the other planets. Like Venus is all cloud. We can't see it. So, you know, Mars has held this allure to us and we have this want to understand it. It's, you know, so, so every mission has been adding to this idea of was there life on Mars? Is there life on Mars? So, you know, every, every mission looks at, could there have been past water? Okay. There's evidence of past water. What kind of environment was it when, you know, is there fossil record in the rock? So Every mission's adding to that, and this mission is doing the same. This mission is actually looking specifically for signs of past microbial life, which would be very cool to find, which would help explain why we're here, which, you know, kind of is the ultimate question. But there's also stuff on board. Um, there's an instrument. I forget the full name of it, but its acronym is MOXIE, which is just a great word. Um, oh, I love that. Actually working on, <laughs> which is working on making uh, oxygen out of atmospheric carbon dioxide, which is very interesting, very cool, and, you know, something humans need on a future mission. Um, and the Ingenuity little helicopter is going to kind of prove that 
you know, a helicopter could maybe work in the very thin Martian atmosphere, but that would also support future exploration. I mean, imagine rovers are great. They cover a lot of distance, but imagine landing a lander with like 50 little mini helicopters. You could just cover a whole lot of ground on that planet in one go. So it's there's proving we can do it, but proving we can do it to learn a lot more. That's kind of the other half of that sentence. This is so deeply cool. I know. <laughs> a helicopter well, rover on Mars. Right? I mean, you know how I feel about this, Jess. It's like, you know, I sort of have this joke about how, you know, even if you do believe in God, like say you're like fully immersed in, um, you know, your Bible teachings and whatnot. You can't, you really have to sit back and, and be in denial if you believe that like God finished with us, like we were his no life work, anywhere else. And, and, and that he just <laughs> right? was like, I'm going to take a nap now. and like, chill. And they're perfect. See them. They're perfect. Um, yeah. So that's my joke can't, about can't humanity. That. <laughs> and one of the things I, <laughs> the joke is basically premised in the fact that like space is so big. It's so big. Yeah. Um, and it's bigger than like I can even comprehend. And then that part yeah. of it, it's that that's why I feel like the Mars thing is funny because as you mentioned, it's we're obsessed because it's so close. Um, yeah. But are there any people who are like, guys, we should explore further? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And there are <laughs> missions that are in the works. There's I I don't know the timelines off the top of my head of when these things are going, but there's a mission that's been under development to go to Jupiter's moon Europa. And I think a new mission was just approved to go to Saturn's moon Titan, which is personally my target. Um, Saturn, I, I knew a, know a chemist who works on Saturn because the atmosphere and environment on Saturn is thought to be very much like primordial earth before we had oxygen. Hmm. So if we can study that and see there's liquid and ethane and methane seas, like there's the environment that something could actually exist there. And with Europa, there's a huge subsurface oceans under the ice. Stuff could live there if it also has hydrothermal vents that warm it enough, right? Just like we have. So these two, these two targets are so much more interesting for me than Mars. They're so much further away. You know, it takes like, I think right. um, Perseverance took seven months to go to Mars. It's, I, I don't know, the, you know, the transfer times vary depending on, you know, a lot of variables. But it's, it's like seven years to get to Jupiter and to Saturn <laughs> and like nine years to Saturn. Like, that's such a long mission to get funding for that long. And you got to think, too, like... If you launch, you know, if you launch in 2020, your technology is frozen. So by the time it gets there, oh, I, I God, mean, that, right. like, it's not developing. It's not literally frozen. Um, well, it is you, space. You, know, you do it be, wrong, it'll it, freeze. It is all <laughs> right. But, you know, you're, if you have this, like, you know, really cool new technology that develops in 2024, well, your technology is already on its way to space. Oh, so no, everybody would be on Jupiter with a flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's, that's so funny. It is, like, like your your tech stops evolving long before you get to your distant target. So that's another thing that makes deep deeper space exploration so hard. But like, yeah, you will not find I, I think you'd have a hard time finding someone who works in space who doesn't believe there's life somewhere. And it you know, it may not be in our backyard. But there are there are right. too many other planets out there for some for us to be the only thing. I don't know, not to say that there's like another full society, but like there's definitely microbes living somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be full society. Yeah, there's got to be full societies. They don't have to be in our, in our solar system, but there, there oh, definitely yeah. does. And I yeah. think I, I'm just worried that people are going to be disappointed if we find microbes on Mars because we have built up Martians 
so big that's, in yeah. our national economy. Well, that, well, like we have thing is like <laughs> yeah, we have this idea that like looking for life on other planets that we're finding another sentient society, but you know, in reality. For science people, finding microbes anywhere in our solar system would be huge. That would be insanely huge. But the other thing with, you know, if we're looking at other solar systems and stuff, you got to remember that the further away you look, the further back in time, right? So, like, we would have to be looking with the right technology to find this supposed other sentient society at the right time in its planet's evolutionary history to see it. So there's a there are oh a lot of things God, that make it so very crazy. very hard. Mind blown. <laughs> yeah, it's blown, you guys. <laughs> like, oh my God, my brain it's like doing things right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's space. Fun That's to think what about. it. Okay, I read a thing yesterday that I was like, uh, I don't know, space hotel. Did you see this? There's going to be a space hotel open by like 2030. Oh yeah, I saw this. I saw. It this looks like tweet. Elysium, like that awful movie, that like. Weird. My, I feel like is is that real? <laughs> like, are, we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't seen this one specifically, but like, of course, of course, as pe- soon as people start going into space, people start to try to privatize it to make money off it, right? I mean, could there be anything more American? Um, <laughs> the the idea of kind of the space hotel is not necessarily new. I mean, early early space station concepts from the forties weren't the ISS. They weren't this little like you know, throw, you know, constructed over a decade, little thing where six people can live. Um, they were looking, people were planning like 60 to a hundred person space stations where people could legitimately live for years to work and could launch missions. So the idea of a large scale space station like that is not necessarily new and living and working for a prolonged time in space is also not new. So the question is really just like, can the technology get us there? Because as soon as the technology is there and it becomes affordable, and I, by affordable I mean like affordable to the super wealthy and celebrities because it's going to be really expensive. Um, <laughs> yeah, it of course will happen. But, you know, I, I, 2030 seems a little early for me. Doesn't it? Um, I mean, at this point, yeah. everybody you send to space has to be good at space, right? Like, you don't get to go yeah. to a space station unless you know how to uh, fix the space station, unless you have some scientific value to the space station. Yeah. Putting a whole bunch of tourists in a, a space station just seems like a... I mean, you've yeah. seen what tourists do to a hotel on Earth. I, I Right? The stakes are <laughs> higher if your hotel is in space. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and not to mention, I mean, every like, okay, everything in space is trying to kill you, like, literally right. everything from the moment... It's worse than Australia. Rocket to rocket. <laughs> <laughs> at least in Australia, everything is terrifying, but at least you can breathe. In space, everything right. is terrifying, and you can't breathe. So, you know, it's it's not going to be as easy as, oh, you want to go to the space hotel? Yeah, cool. Um, there's going to have to be some level of, like, just basic medical clearance. Like, if you get sick in space, I don't know how... There has never been, like, extensive research into, can you do sur- emergency surgery in space? <laughs> you know, Ooh. if you get sick, they're they're not going to take somebody with certain medical conditions because if they need to get home in an emergency, it's not it's not down the road to the hospital. It's you know potentially hours to get to the right point for reentry to return to get you to the hospital. You know, they can't have people that might die. So there's there's a lot of stuff that you know the idea is so appealing and science fiction has given us this idea is very realistic. But I think there's a there's a lot more challenges than people realize. Yeah, I never zero. thought about surgery in space till this yeah. morning. I am study. fascinated by fa- by space, <laughs> like fascinated by it. I'll watch I'll watch every space thing I can get my hands on. I'll read all the books. I love it. The idea of going, 
terrifies me so yeah. much. Like, I can, yeah. if I just think about it too much, like, I would be Space Madness immediately. Like, Steve Buscemi <laughs> in, in the <laughs> asteroid, like, that is me right away. Like, like we'd buckle up and I would lose it in the corner. Like, that's it. <laughs> there is no chance I'm going to the space hotel and now I have, what if I need emergency surgery as an excellent backup reason uh, for being <laughs> there you go. a wuss about it. Uh, so I want, I want to ask what, what, uh, what all this means for climate change, right? That's the existential question of our time. Um, yeah. It does seem like NASA is one of the entities that could help us shed some light on mm-hmm. uh, what it all means and, you know, how to stop it. So, so how, how and is NASA participating in, in Earth science missions to deal with that? There are, I think, um, I think there's close to 40 Earth active Earth science missions right now. I think I looked this up recently, actually, because I was curious. I think it's it's somewhere like that. And there's there's satellites that are tracking, um, you know, photographing for ice, looking at the water cycle, um, you know, just just doing a general survey to help scientists understand the state of the planet. And I think we have this this very like very dangerously false idea that if we start, you know, getting more knowledge about Mars, we can just go there. Like, no, we, we can't. We can't just, like, abandon our planet in, in any, you know, quickly at all to just, like, you know, jump ship because we ruined it. We right. have to save this planet. Like, like that, going to Mars, also going to Mars, it's not like you can just make an atmosphere. There's no button, like, in Total Recall, okay? It's, <laughs> it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really, really hard. It's gonna be it really didn't even work out well in Total Recall. Yeah, I'm just going to say. I don't remember I was the like... end of that movie enough to, like, except I saw <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger's face going crazy and then being like, this movie is so ridiculous. Some <laughs> 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 the surface societies on Mars that we can just hang out with. So, That's amazing. You know, NASA does a ton of Earth science. NASA, it's just, the missions are just not the sexy ones we talk about, but they are so vitally important. And, like, we are able to do a lot ourselves to help stem the, the, the flow of te- climate change. I mean, the, the storms in Texas are climate change. Like, it's, right. it's here. Like, we, we know this is, we're facing this head on. We can make changes. We just have to all agree on how to do it. And the people in charge need to do that. So, you know, NASA's doing the science, and if people start listening to the science, we might be in an okay position, but, like, it is serious. And NASA is doing a ton of work on that front. It's not, it's not all just driving on Mars. It's a lot of, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of understanding our own planet, because guess what? Right. Our own planet is also in space. Whoa. Oh! <laughs> I know that was super basic, but you never think about that, though. No, you totally don't. <laughs> people, people are always like, NASA just goes to other planets. I'm like, but we're also a planet. You, you know that, right? Like, all of space exploration started with wanting to understand our own environment more and how our own planet differs from other planets. That is the whole impetus for That's space the whole thing. exploration. You guys. <laughs> you guys. Like, it's always I'm been not, about Earth. I can't be the only one who made that sound when she said that. <laughs> Right? Everyone at home was like, oh, I, what? Now that we're all confronted with our own relative nothingness in the the face of of an incredibly immense void, um, I want to thank Amy for joining us this morning. (laughs) The book is Fighting for Space, Two Pilots in Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight. I just want to say, like, if you have young 
girls or, or boys even, but like especially the girls because they're not going to get this encouragement from other places. Like if you have young people in your life who are interested in this stuff, this is such a great place to get started. Like this is this is it's it's a real it's a wild story. We didn't even scratch the surface. Um, so highly recommend that. Uh, Amy, Shara, Titel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This has been honestly just delightful. <laughs> yes. Thank you guys so much for having me. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.